Oh God and Father, you come to us and into all the world, and your word meets with us and meets with all of those that you call in all of the world and bears fruit among them and joins us all together into your people. I give thanks, Lord, for the power of the word as we sit under it. I pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we hear your word and be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. And I pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So for those of you who have been here, um, this is the end of the road. As I said, I know we have some guests this morning, and so if you're visiting with us this morning, we've been preaching through the book of Colossians, this letter that Paul writes to this church at Colossae, and this is it. He's finished the body of the letter, and now he leaves this church with some final personal greetings. And I know that it can be a little weird to actually hear those kinds of personal greetings as a scripture reading on a Sunday morning. They can seem a little different to us. We can view the Bible as a sort of abstract set of truths, right? Kind of just written to everyone. And there's a general sense to the Bible. Paul, even here in verse 16 in this passage, shows that he expects this letter to be read at the other churches as authoritative. But it's also a personal letter, like we said at the offset. Paul is writing to a particular group of people with particular concerns, we take nothing else from this last words, it's worth just keeping that reality in mind, that Tychicus, in verse 7, was an actual dude who actually took this roll of parchments for this letter um, that was written on, and he walked for miles through Turkey, and then he held it out in his calloused hands and gave it to these other people who are at this actual church in this town named Colossae, that these aren't characters in myths or fables, but these are actual men and women who are our brothers and sisters. But that said, it is normal, I think, for us to wonder what exactly we are supposed to do with these parts of Paul's letter. When Paul tells us to put to death sins, or to to seek to live into certain sorts of righteousness, or to hold Christ up as preeminent, we're like, okay, I get how that applies to me, But I don't think any of us are going to go home this afternoon and greet Nympha and the church that meets in her house. Nor are we probably going to call up Archippus to tell him to complete the ministry that he has received. And yet we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and useful, as Paul himself says in 1 Timothy 3. So what do we do with passages like this one? Well, here's what I think. In many ways, this whole letter has been about community in Christ. We are a community, as the church, Paul says, which Christ has established and is the head of. We are a community called to life together, called to kill sins that divide us and live into love and peace. Paul's been writing about this one body, and now, in these words, we get a sense of what this body might actually be like as Paul experiences it. We get a glimpse of the actual faces that he has in mind as he writes about being the church. So I'd just like us to think about that, about what Paul's community was actually like and about how that models for us some of the things that he's been calling us to throughout this letter. So let's think about that. What was Paul's community actually like? First, from these verses, I think that we learn that Paul's community was diverse. It was diverse. It had all kinds of people in it. 
Just the people Paul mentions here are a motley crew, all right? In the first place, they're of different cultures and classes. So there's Jews like Mark and Aristarchus and Jesus, who is called Justice. Jesus was a pretty common name in the first century, if you're wondering about that, but most early Christians adopted a kind of secondary name out of reverence for the Lord. Um, And these people, Paul says, were Jews um, among the co-workers who were a great comfort, Paul says, but they were also the only ones, right? So everyone else is a Gentile's that Epaphras and Luke and Demas and Tychicus and Onesimus are all probably Greeks. And in the surrounding world, Jews and Greeks did not get along. Majorly didn't get along. They were politically opposed to each other. They thought each other's cultures were strange and offensive. But Paul's community bridges that divide. And the same is true economically. Some of these people were probably wealthy. Luke is a doctor for example, which then, like today, means that he's probably well-off, although then it was more because you had to be well-off in order to start practicing medicine than because you actually got that way from doing it. And Paul sends greetings to Nympha, who apparently owns this big house where a church gathers, right? But then at the same time, Paul sends Onesimus, a faithful and dear brother, and Onesimus, we learn if we read the book of Philemon, was a slave, A runaway slave, in fact, um, run away from one of the other members of the church in Colossae, and he became a Christian after he ran away, and now Paul talks about him with the same intimate language of brotherhood he uses for the people like Nympha and Luke. So rich people and slaves are equally a part of Paul's community. And these people have different callings. Epaphras is a pastor and church planter. Luke is a doctor. Onesimus was a servant. Nympha was gifted in hospitality. Paul values each of these people in their different callings. I love Paul's rather cryptic message to Archippus in verse 17. See to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. We have no idea what that ministry was, right? Or even who Archippus is between this one mention in the Bible. But here's Paul this missionary to the world, in prison, but he apparently cares about this other guy's calling enough to encourage or challenge him. Paul's surrounded by people who each have their own job in Jesus' kingdom, and he values those different callings. And it is so important for us as Christians today to think about what we can do to seek that same diversity in our churches and relationships. It's probably not news to any of us, right, that we live in a deeply divided world, divided in all kinds of ways. It's long been remarked upon, for instance, that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America. There are white churches and black churches and churches of other ethnicities, and we might not even consciously try to make them that way, but we can import our divisions in the world around us with us when we come to church. And our churches can also be divided along other lines of economics and class and place in society, right? There are older churches and younger churches. There are churches for baby boomers and Gen Xers and millennials. There are churches full of educated people and churches heavily weighted toward the uneducated. Some churches are enormously wealthy and others are extremely poor. And while it's harder to notice, our churches can also divide in terms of our callings. Someone once commented to me that he thinks one of the biggest reasons we have all these denominations and, um, and local churches in the world is not because of big theological divides. I mean, that factors in, but it's because of different spiritual gifts and callings. I think he's right. The churches tend to take certain gifts, teaching, 
or service or fellowship or whatever, and they hold those things up as more central and more important and more Christian than other gifts. And so people with similar gifts tend to gather with each other and exclude or look down upon people who are called in other ways. There's even a strain of thinking in, modern, in the modern world that would say that all of that is okay, that the church, is, the church should select some kind of little slice of people or brand and just focus on them. But there are all kinds of problems with that approach, and the biggest of them is the Bible. The picture Scripture paints of the church is always a diverse one. It is meant to be for all races, for all ages, for all classes, for people with every gift and calling, a place where people who are diverse and different can live together in unity. And I think when we fail to realize this, we as a church suffer. Young people and old people, for example, need each other, right? Young people need the wisdom and experience that older saints have to offer, and older Christians need the zeal and enthusiasm that young people bring. When you put them together, both groups are actually stronger, which doesn't mean that life that way is going to be easy. Living in a diverse community is going to require each of us to sacrifice some things. If, in, if our group, whatever our group is, gets all of the songs and programs and activities and focus and sermons, then it means that we as a church are failing to serve the diversity of people we have. The more than that, too, people are just different, and that's hard, right? They think about things differently, especially when we're talking about those divisions in society that we experience in the church we're actually having to deal with the fact that we have different ideas and thoughts and values and have to figure out what to do with that. Living in that diversity means that our differences are going to cause us to butt heads from time to time. But the book of Proverbs tells us that just as iron sharpens iron, so we are supposed to sharpen each other. And I think that that headbutting is exactly what the book of Proverbs has in mind when it says it, Right? That somehow actually in that collision, in the hard stuff of living together as a diverse community, when we smack into each other, we are actually sharpening each other like a blacksmith sharpens a blade. So how practically do we seek to grow in that? It's a big question. Let me just try to give a few small answers for us this morning that we can all put into practice. First, living in a diverse body is going to require that we listen that we listen a lot. Our instinct when we encounter people that are different from us is to talk, to try to explain our way of doing things and defend our way of doing things and hold up our way of doing things as the best. But that usually only makes it worse. Different people have different stories and backgrounds. They think differently. They have different reasons for the ways that they think. And the only way to live together with our differences is to really try to understand each other, to ask people lots of questions, and then to listen really hard to their answers. Second, we need to seek to focus on Jesus. As we live in the diverse body of the church, the thing that unites us is going to have to be the gospel. God's love in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's who all of these people in all these different places and callings, that's who they're coming to. That's who they're gathering around, Jesus. And so the more we seek to keep him at the center of things, the more we're able to live with our other differences. 
And third, I think we need, can grow simply by trying to teach ourselves to think of people who are different from us as gifts rather than as difficulties. Approaching them as they are and then um, appreciating that rather than trying to make them more like us. And this is something I struggle with, right? I, um, like every one of you, am gifted in certain ways, so I have a lot of gifts about teaching and discernment and study and knowledge and the things that are the reason that I'm standing up here, right? And there are people, like I think about this woman that I used to know in the church, right, Um, years ago, and that was not her gift set at all. She would um, would start talking, and I would kind of, um, in honesty, kind of just be like, no, like, that's not how you should say that. I don't know how biblical that is at all. And I'd struggle with her a lot because I'm just like, why can't you be, um, you know, more precise and more careful and more studied in these things? Why can't you be more like I am? Um, <laughs> right? And it was a real struggle. But, but one day, this woman out of the blue pulls me aside and tells me that she's been praying for me praying in very specific ways that I had no idea that she um, was aware of or really what to do with. Because they weren't things I asked her to pray for, right? But they were really needful. And, um, and coming away from that conversation, I realized that this woman had a gift of prayer, that she was one of those pray-without-ceasing, morning, noon, and night kind of people, right? That she had this constant dialogue going with Jesus where she would talk to him, And he would actually answer her. And that is not me at all. But it is really valuable and admirable. In my rush to want her to be more like me, I had failed to appreciate how there were these things that she had to offer that I didn't. And so I started to ask her to pray for me, and she did. And suddenly I found myself appreciating her and living in unity with her, and not minding so much when she would say things that would make me be like, because um, I recognized that she had these other incredible gifts, different from mine, but equally valuable to the church. So Paul's community is diverse, and that's supposed to teach us. There's also something else that I think that this text shows us, and that's that Paul's community was also messy, Maybe this just goes along with the diversity, but Paul's community was messy. So let's talk about Mark, who's mentioned in verse 10, okay? There's this kind of cryptic message that Paul gives. In parentheses in a lot of your translations, it'll say, you have received instructions about him. If he comes, welcome him. So why would Paul have to say that? Right? Think about it for a minute. Mark is this fellow missionary in Asia Minor Why wouldn't the church at Colossae, of course, just welcome in this missionary and show him hospitality? So we first meet Mark in Acts chapter 12, okay? Alongside Barnabas, his cousin, who's also mentioned here. And Mark is from Jerusalem, and he accompanies Paul and Barnabas for a while. And then in Acts 13, we see that Mark apparently gets scared or burnt out or something, and he bails on them. He leaves the missions field and goes back to Jerusalem. And... In Acts 15, let me just read it to you, starting in verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, they're still journeying together, let's return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them Mark, 
But Paul thought best not to take him with them because he had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. So Mark is this guy who had bailed on the ministry, and then he wanted a second chance, and it created such a serious disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, who'd been working together as missionaries, that they actually split up over it. So because there had been bad blood, Paul now has to make sure to tell the Colossians to welcome Mark, because otherwise they might think that they're kind of taking Paul's side, right, and refuse him their hospitality. And this is evidence that the process of healing between Paul and Mark had begun, but also that it was new and probably hadn't finished, right? There's this mess here. And while Paul doesn't know it yet, there's other relational trouble on the way. He mentions Demas here and conveys his greeting to the church as well. But in 2 Timothy, one of Paul's last letters, we learn that Demas later bails on Paul. In his words, because Demas loved the world too much, which does not make it sound pretty. Paul has faced relational strain and tension. He continues to face relational strain and even betrayal throughout his life with these people. His community is a mess. Which first, I just find kind of comforting. Because it reminds me that it's not unusual to struggle in relationships with people. There are times that we can talk about getting back to the early church as if back then everything was butterflies and unicorns. But the reality is that it was never easy. The mess has always been there. No less than the Apostle Paul gets in fights with his friends that cause them to to separate and not speak to each other. No less than the Apostle Paul gets betrayed by people close to him. So we probably shouldn't expect things to be easier than he had it. Which isn't to say that those kinds of struggles aren't miserable or that we should want them. But I do think we can develop this kind of relational perfectionism. At least I can. I can do it in my marriage, in friendships, in the church. We can expect people to be wonderful all the time and relationships to be easy. And when they aren't, we can say, okay then, good riddance. I'm done with this. But the Bible rejects that kind of perfectionism. People are sinners, it reminds us. Community is hard. We don't get a pass on the calling to love people just because they're difficult. In fact, those are exactly the people that the call to love first applies to. When Paul told us earlier in this letter to endure with one another and to forgive each other, I'm betting that it is Mark and Barnabas' faces that he was picturing. When he talks about how we need to be gentle and patient with each other, I'm sure that he's looking out the window of his cell with a wry smile on his lips, right? Thinking about the people in particular that he's being called to be gentle and patient with. Paul's call to unity and peace was just as challenging for him as it was for us. But I also think watching Paul's relationships is a wonderful reminder that working through the mess is ultimately worth it. It's worth it. We mentioned Mark, right? And here's the interesting thing about that relationship. We said that Paul's words here seem to indicate that there's starting to be a healing of this relational break, and that healing continues. So at the end of 2 Timothy again, right after we learn about Demas' betrayal, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.11, Get Mark and bring him with you, 
for he is very useful to me in ministry. Paul apparently worked through the mess with Mark and Barnabas, and what he ended up with was a valuable relationship. So valuable that he's in prison and he sends his protege Timothy to bring Mark because of how indispensable he's become. Right? I'm one of those people who has, for real, a best friend. Um, he's been up to visit, and some of you have gotten a chance to meet him. He spoke at my installation service. And I've known KJ with, since he was 15, and we lived together for several years during college. And um, my, I talk to him several times a week still, and my wife gives me grief because sometimes I accidentally tell him things before I tell her, right? We are, we are these deeply close people, but that does not mean that things have been easy for us. We first met because he says I was flirting with a girl that he had just broken up with, which I probably was, but don't tell him that. Um, We met, you know, back in high school because he was coming over because he was jealous and kind of wanted to punch me in the face. And over the years, we have had some knockdown, drag-out fights. We have yelled at each other and had to say hard things to each other. I mean, if, if nothing else, we're two dudes who lived together for several years, and he's an organized, introverted neatnik, and I am none of those things. And we had plenty of fights, lots of mess. Somehow we stuck with that friendship, right? Maybe it was just stubbornness on both our parts. And one of the things I've realized years into it is that the conflict and the mess... Those weren't pleasant to go through, but we actually have a deeper relationship because of it. That there is a level of trust and vulnerability that we can have with each other because we've already said the hard words and gone through the hard stuff to some extent. And that's how I think all relationships work. It's how marriage works too. And it's how life together as the church works. That was certainly the case for Paul. If Paul confronted with the mess had bailed, There would have been no mark to help him late in his life. But by persevering, Paul saw this relationship grow. And that is the truth for us as well. Not every hard relationship is going to end up being a mark. All right, I, I wish I could promise that, but it won't. But some of them might. And we live in a throwaway age. When an appliance breaks, we toss it and get a new one. It's all Happy Meal boxes and disposable packaging. And one of the tragedies of our age is that it teaches us to treat our relationships the same way, as disposable. Though when they start getting hard, we ditch them and have a new one. We think that makes us happy. But I don't know that it does, because the other thing that characterizes our age is loneliness. Study after study finds that people today are remarkably lonely. And I wonder if at least some of that could be helped if we just stuck with Paul's example in relationship of sticking with people through the mess, forgiving them, and seeking to work through it. So Paul's community was diverse. Paul's community was messy. There's one more reality I think that these final greetings should teach us. And it's one that's so simple that I think that we can easily just look past it as we're reading it. But that's that Paul's community was also necessary. He needed the community. I mean, how do you picture the Apostle Paul, right, if you've read the Bible? I think for many of us, he looks like this kind of missionary, lone wolf superhero, right? He's out riding alone and meets God on the road to Damascus and has this religious experience. And so then he goes from there and he rides out on his horse with his cloak billowing out behind him to save the world alone with no help. 
and he travels from church to church, preaching the gospel solitary, facing down all those who would oppose him, single-handedly converting tens of thousands of people, one man on his own. But that's not how the Bible pictures Paul at all. Paul's ministry was defined by his relationships. Just think about all the people mentioned just in this letter, right? He's got Tychicus and Onesimus, both helping care for him, carrying the letter. He's got Epaphras, a fellow pastor, sharing um, with the churches in Asia Minor. He's got Aristarchus and Mark and Jesus, who's called Justice, working with him in prison, and Luke and Demas, too. And that's not mentioning all of the many other significant relationships we learn about in the book of Acts and his other letters. There's Ananias, the guy who discipled Paul through the first baby steps of the faith in Damascus. Priscilla and Aquila, who further mentored and worked beside him. The twelve other apostles, and Timothy, and Titus, and Silas, and Apollos, and other pastors and missionaries working with him in Asia Minor. And I could actually go on. I generated a list of all of the people who knew Paul, and there's a lot more people on the list. All right? Paul is surrounded by relationships. And these people were not just sort of neutral co-laborers either. Paul loves these people. Just look at the language that he uses for them. Tychicus, a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant. Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother. Aristarchus, who is a fellow prisoner, and Paul uses a special Greek word, not just the normal word for prisoner, but he, he means like a brotherly fellow prisoner of war, right? A guy down in the trenches with me. Aristarchus and Mark and Justice, who have proved a comfort to me. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor. These are not just things that you say about professional co-workers. These are things you say about people you love. Paul was not a lone wolf. In fact, if I can use the modern language, Paul traveled with a posse, an entourage, right? A, 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 a girl club. I don't know what, what the... Anyway, there were continually people around and beside and behind him. There's this whole network of mentors and mentorees and friends and fellow workers that Paul was a part of. And if it wasn't for this network... Paul's missionary activities would never have been as successful as they were. We mentioned this at the beginning of the sermon series, but Paul has never been to Colossae, right? He wasn't the one who started the church there. That was probably Epaphras. So there would be no Christians for Paul to write this letter to if he was going it alone. Even Paul the apostle who wrote half the New Testament and proclaimed the gospel to the ends of the earth, even Paul needed a community. Maybe especially Paul needed a community. He could not have fulfilled the mission God gave him without it. His community was necessary. And community is deeply necessary for us as well. There's this idea we can get in our struggle with sin. We can think that we have to clean ourselves up, that we need to beat our major sin issues before we get close to people in the church. We tell ourselves that we're going to solve this addiction or overcome this struggle, and then we're going to start building relationships with people. But the problem is, many of our sin struggles can only be overcome with the support of our brothers and sisters. We are not meant to beat sin by our solitary willpower alone. The accountability and encouragement and prayer and advice and grace that fellow Christians give are essential tools for us in that struggle. 
To try to deal with those sins without their help is like deciding that we need to get better before we go see the doctor and get some medicine. The same thing can happen in our pursuit of holiness. We feel like we're struggling to live out an area of our faith, and we too often think that the solution is just to kind of crack down and make our private regimes more strict. But one of the ways to help ourselves grow in spiritual obedience is to invite others to walk with us. Do you struggle with prayer? Pray with other people. Do you struggle to spend time in God's word? Partner with someone to be accountable with. Do you see a gift or an area of service that you want to start to grow in? Find somebody who's doing it or is good at it and ask if you can tag along. Or most importantly, I think, we can think that trusting Jesus somehow means that we're supposed to bear the weight of life alone. That if we really trusted him enough, we wouldn't need anybody else. But it's precisely at the moments that we are struggling to trust that we need the community of faith the most. There are moments that I struggle to believe, and I need other people to believe for me. There are doubts that seem so large when I keep them stuffed in the corners of my mind, but that lose much of their power when they're shared. There are aches that, while they don't go away, they become bearable simply because I know that there's somebody else aching with me. Ultimately, What Paul is trying to remind us of is that Christianity is not meant to be gone at alone. His example should teach us that Christians aren't meant to be lone wolves, but rather geese. I think Paul wants us to be like geese. All right, and I realize that the goose is probably not the most exciting animal. But hear me out, all right? Every year... These geese, you see them overhead, right? They undertake these huge migrations, and they can fly two or 3,000 miles, um, which is like if you walked that and walked 30 miles a day, it would take you 100 days to do that, right? This is a long ways, and that's just one way. They do this round trip, so five or 6,000 miles that they travel in a year, every year. You've seen them migrating, right? They're spread out in this V-shape in this flock overhead, and there's a good reason that they're doing that, because on its own, one goose actually could not fly that far. It couldn't eat enough. It would burn off all of its calories and die if it tried to make that migration alone. By flying together, the geese actually help each other. There's one goose in the front who's breaking the air resistance for the geese behind to make their flight easier. And the geese back there, they're honking to encourage that goose in the front to keep going. And then when he gets tired, he drops back and another goose flies up front. Um, Scientists, they've, been, they've studied this for years, and most scientists say that that flock formation of flying together means geese can fly 70% farther in a day than they could without the flock, right? They're actually able to make those migrations only by sticking together. And in fact, it's so essential that if a goose gets injured or needs to drop out, two or three or four other geese will drop out with them because they recognize that a goose left on its own cannot get where it's supposed to go. Christianity is exactly like that. I do not, on my own, have enough resources to get where I'm supposed to go. I need the help of the rest of the body, the flock. And as we serve in different ways and live out different strengths, we can break the headwind for those people around us. And then when we get tired, we can rest and trust them to do the same. And when we're broken or hurting, we need that community the most. We are, like geese, meant to fly together. 
That was true for the Apostle Paul, and it's true for us. So let's live into that community. Let's embrace it in all of its diversity, recognizing that these different people help us grow to be more like Jesus. Let's embrace it in its messiness, even recognizing that even though we can wound and wrestle with each other, we need each other, and we're still better together. And let's seek to constantly remember that community's necessity, that we were made for life together, not for life alone. Would you pray with me? Father, I just give you thanks for the truth of this, Lord. I give you thanks for the blessing that so many saints, so many of these brothers and sisters have already been to Elizabeth and to me and to the blessings that I see them being to each other. I pray that we might all grow up more and more into it. Lord, grow us um, in our love for people who are different from us. Grow us in our love for people, even though it's hard. Grow us up together, that together we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds, and more and more in our unity together be the body of Jesus Christ our Lord. pray all these things in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me and sing hymn 25?
Amen. It's so good to worship the Lord with you. A couple of announcements. First of all, the Kumars will be out back, and I know they actually forgot to mention they are also fundraising, so generously offer them um, that if that's something that the Lord has blessed you with, but do also offer them your prayers and fellowship as we, as the community of Christ, go with them as they go. I know they're about 70% raised and are leaving in November, right, for Bihar, although they will also be back at some point, hopefully. And... um, In addition, the youth going on the trip need to use the restroom and then go out into the field back there to have a group photo. Yes, Michael? Does that cover it? Um, Also know if you're visiting with us or if you're not. um, Be fellowship time. You're welcome to join us in the um, fellowship hall for that. And then we will have two adult Sunday school classes. Um, Larry Larson is continuing his one on the glory of God, which is sweet stuff. Um, in Sunday School Room 1, and I'll be doing week 2 of our Sunday School class about evangelism in Sunday School Room 2. So if you'd like to join us for that, it would be great. I think that covers all of the logistics. It is a good thing to be together. It is a hard world out there, and we are given each other to go out into it. So take care of each other as you walk out from this place and go with Jesus' presence and his blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace, now and forever. Amen.